Hey, welcome to 60 Minutes of Music, Literature, Poetry, and a Little Humor. Tonight's show is coming to you live from the beautiful Crystal Ballroom at the Hotel Leo, an historic hotel and hospitality hub in the alliterative heart of downtown Bellingham, here at the top of Chuckanut Drive in the shadow of the Chuckanut Mountains. It's summer solstice here in Bellingham, the city of subdued excitement, but don't pack away your sweaters and rain gear quite yet because it's more like January out there. Grab a treat and put up your feet. It's time now for the Chuckanut Radio Hour. The Chuckanut Radio Hour has a rootin' tootin' good show in store for you tonight. The Chuckanut Radio players take gaming to a higher level in a new episode of As the Ham Turns. Making fabulous and sweet music tonight is our musical guest, the duet of Tracy Darling. Our resident poet, Kevin Murphy, will perform a magical sleight of words. And Beck Dietrich will interview tonight's guest author, Lyanda Lynn Haupt, about her book, Rooted, Life at the Crossroads of Science, Nature, and Spirit. I'm your announcer, Rich Donnelly, and here are your hosts, Kelly Everett and Paul Hansen. Hey. <laughs> hey, thank you, Rich. Thank you, Rich. You know, I don't think we've ever done a show on the actual summer solstice before. Right. I was wondering if we'd be doing something special. Oh, like what, for example? Well, there are lots of ways to celebrate the end of the Oak King's reign. Who is the Oak King? I'm so glad you asked. He's the rival of the Holly King, and in some pagan traditions, the two of them battle it out on the solstices. At the winter solstice, the Oak King wins, and we start to see more daylight. By the summer solstice, the Oak King is old and tired, so the Holly King wins, and the days start to get shorter. So it's like a seasonal smackdown. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, wait a second. The Holly King is taking over already. Does that mean I need to put up Christmas decorations? Well, it never hurts to plan ahead. Kind of a bummer to think that starting tonight we're on the downhill slide toward winter. Oh, you don't have to buy into this whole Oak King, Holly King grudge match. There are lots of other ways to observe the summer solstice, like staying up till it's really dark, which around here could be after 11. Hmm. Well, we should be done with the show by then. Uh, what, are, <laughs> what are some other ways to celebrate? I did a little Googling for ideas. Oh, I bet you did, Rich. One is to gather herbs. Their medicinal qualities are associated with magical and healing powers. Well, I guess I could stop at the co-op on the way home. <laughs> Another thing you can do is watch the sunrise and sunset. Oh, but that's less than eight hours. You know, I really need my beauty sleep. Is that what we're calling sleeping in now? Also, you can leave offerings for the fairies. They like sweet treats and booze. Mm, now you're talking. I don't know. That just sounds like an excuse for not cleaning up the kitchen. Well, generally, getting outside is a good way to celebrate. And if you really want to get fancy, you can make a prayer tree. You write down your intentions and hopes for the coming year and attach them to a branch outdoors where it'll be exposed to sunlight. Now, I like that one. That's very positive. <laughs> yeah, you know, with my luck, I'd get reported on next door for TPing. <laughs> But the best one, I think, is a good old-fashioned bonfire. You can even write down stuff you want to purge and throw the notes into the fire. 
Well, we do have that pile of old paperwork and bills that we we're going to shred. <laughs> you know, it sounds like the same thing. Hey, can we howl at the moon while we're doing it? I think that'd be totally appropriate. Well, then count us in. If we hightail it out of here after the show, we're heading for our teeping, kitchen dirtying, moon howling, beauty sleep skipping shred party to celebrate the solstice. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> you know, I think we've inadvertently tapped into Kelly's dark side. Uh, so, uh, Rich, why don't you extricate us from this and introduce our musical guest? My pleasure. Our guest is the musical duet Tracy Darling, made up of Tracy Luther and Alexandra Dumas. Their songs are playful and philosophical and are about love, nature, and the truth. Please give a warm welcome to Tracy Darling. It's hard enough now as it is. 
Thank you so much. We look forward to hearing from more of that from you later. <laughs> so, did either of you participate in this year's Ski to Sea race? No, not this year. Well, at least not on purpose. But, you know, it's gotten too competitive for me. I hear people have suffered heart attacks during the race. No, oh, that's terrible. Which leg? Well, typically heart attacks happen in the chest. <laughs> oh. Well, I was focused on the Bellingham Naked Bike Ride, which also just took place. I was so ready to be part of that. Oh, why didn't you go through with it? I got the dates mixed up with Ski to Sea, so needless to say, I made quite an impression on the road bike leg. Yeah, more than your leg. Uh, so in other news, has anyone been keeping up with politics? I'm trying my best to avoid it for now. Yeah, you know, it's probably for the best. It turns out Ron DeSantis has a book coming out where he reveals he wants Florida to be the blueprint for America. Uh, you're kidding. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, that reminds me of the Monty Python skit where the architect shows up to present his proposal for the hotel project, but instead brings plans for a slaughterhouse, complete with rotating knives. Uh, that's a scary comparison. So uh, what would DeSantis' blueprint entail? A crocodile for every man, woman, and child? <laughs> oh, close. Uh, everyone gets a Florida Man starter kit mailed to them. What do you think would be in that? A five-pack of Miller High Life. Don't you mean a six-pack? Well, this is being sent from Florida, so... Oh, we get it. One can short of a six-pack. Uh, maybe a bushel of illegal fireworks, which I suppose under DeSantis wouldn't be Ill illegal anymore. And a checklist for banning books. An instructional pamphlet on how to turn your yard into a swamp. Hmm. The book, How to Make Friends into Enemies and Influence People by Threatening Them. And a mousetrap? A mousetrap? You know, how he feels about Mickey. Oh, yeah. A taser. Why a taser? Oh, why not? It's sure to end ridiculously, like most Florida man stories. <laughs> That's true. Oh, and I bet it's all convenient, conveniently mailed to you in a banker's box with top secret on the lid, crossed out in crayon. <laughs> wow, this is going to be a long election cycle. I vote we check to see what's happening on Bellingham's favorite Suds opera. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> 
Time again to check in on the Newberries, the family of newbie transplants to Bellingham, as they struggle to learn the ways of the city of subdued excitement in As the Ham Turns. As our story begins, Josh and Sarah Newberry have decided to wander south to Mount Vernon for a visit to the Skagit Valley Highland Games. Ready for our Highland Fling? <sighs> Went for the low-hanging fruit in the joke department, didn't you? <laughs> Sarah, all the world knows that a man never stands so tall as when he stoops to make an obvious joke. Huh? I don't know. You'll have to figure it out. There's a good sentence in there somewhere. <sighs> where do you want to go first? Let's get something to eat, shall we? Oh, I know where this is going. You are going after Scotland's gross domestic product. Yes. Haggis. <sighs> you know, we never have haggis at home. Yeah, Josh, I-, I would make you haggis, but I don't have the stomach for it. Uh, I-, I see what you did there. Mm-hmm. How about something more along the lines of a meat pie? Well, if you don't have the intestinal fortitude. Oh, enough with the haggis. If you don't mind, my stomach is going to have its own highland fling. Meat pie it is. Looks like the food vendors are over that way, shall we? Oh, I do love the bagpipes, I have to admit. Always walking while they play. Well, probably trying to get away from the noise. <laughs> uh, it's either that or because a moving target, it's harder to hit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they must be hard to tune, though. Wow, I'd love to be there the first time it happens. Uh, I thought you said you like the pipes and drums. I do, I do. I'm just kidding. I wonder how late the bagpipers play. Oh, sounds like uh, about a half a beat behind the drummers. <clears throat> it reminds me of a story. A bagpiper, a banjo player, and an accordion player walk into a bar. Yes? Everybody leaves. <laughs> Holy cow, look how long those food lines are. Oh, what a relief. What do you mean? Well, there's probably no one uh, selling, selling haggis. haggis. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get in line. Say, Josh, you got a program, right? Let's see what the schedule is today. Okay, let's see. It looks like the next event is uh, a border collie competition. Oh, which part? The talent or the swimsuit contest? They're herding sheep, my dear. In fact, it says here that they let seven sheep out of the pen, but when the border collies are done, there's ten sheep in the pen. (laughs) How is that possible? They're rounding them up, Sarah. (sighs) I said they're rounding them up. Yeah, yeah. Consider me a border collie. I heard you the first time. Well, yeah. Anyway, it looks like the traditional Scottish games start when the dogs are done. All that heavy lifting they do. Can you believe how beefy all these competitors are? Boy, I'll say. The bulging arms, the tree trunk legs, the hairy chest. (laughs) And some of the guys look pretty strong, too. (laughs) You like Scottish jokes, do you? Oh, I I, I wasn't... You know how you should start every Scottish joke. I'm obviously not. uh, So, no? By looking over your shoulder. He didn't mean anything by it. He just has this condition that makes him sound like an idiot. Oh, 
and what's that? I am an idiot. Oi, laddies, come over here. I want you to meet a fella. Oh, no, no, that's okay. I'm not really dressed for company. Who would these folk be? Well, this last seems right, Bonnie to bite. What's your name, darling? Well, I'm Sarah. So nice to meet you. And this And is... this one here fancies himself a right joker. Oh, no, 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 not really. I, I just sometimes... Making I just fun feel... of Scots, are you? No, 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 I have nothing but admiration. You find Scotland <sighs> funny, do you? What did you say your name was, Sport? Josh? Well, Josh, I'm from Glasgow. It's a tough place, you know, the murder capital of Europe. Do you understand me? Do you know what they call a fella in a suit in Glasgow? Uh, no. The accused. <laughs> <laughs> you see, we make fun of the Scottish too. All those jokes about the Scots being cheap, they're pretty much spot on. Aye, did you know that copper wire was invented in Scotland? Oh. I didn't know that. There were two Scotsmen fighting over a penny. My name's Fiona, by the way. Fiona Culloden Coburn. Oh, what a musical name. Are you trying to get on my good side now? Yes. Well, don't stop. <laughs> well, and, and, oh, and your hair is the fiery crimson of a sunset over a high mountain lake. Oh, you're starting to grow on me a wee bit. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm Ewan Dewar from Dundee. Ah, Scotch. Nay, it's Scot or it's Scottish. People are nay Scotch. Only whiskey is Scotch. Oh, that's what I meant. Uh, Dewar's, it's a Scotch whiskey. Uh, is it nay or uh, not? Oh, yes. Well, that's fine. Carry on. And, and what is your name, our fine Glaswegian friend? Well, thereby hangs a tale. You see, I was born at a very sad time for me family in Glasgow. First off, they were living in Glasgow. And then me granddad passed away. So you were named after him? Nay, something even sadder happened right after that. My family's wee pooch just up and ran away. Oh, so you were named after the dog? Well, nay, they named me Dog Lass. <sighs> So, you all come over from Scotland to compete in the games here? Aye, there's a circuit that runs through your Pacific Northwest and uh, lower mainland to the north. Even though we miss summer in Scotland, I do it. Aye, there's only two seasons in Scotland, June and winter. <laughs> I've read, though, that global warming is making the summers much hotter over there. Huh? It's true. And it's causing problems, to be sure. Yeah. The sheep smell terrible. Oh. Under all those sweaters, they're sweating something awful. Uh, a... We've mixed feelings about the global warming, though. Why is that? We like the idea of sitting in the highlands and watching the English drown. <laughs> <laughs> so which events do you compete in? Well, we compete in all of them. But we each have our specialties. Douglas here specializes in the Bremer Stone. No, what's that? Well, you stand on a line and throw a stone. Ah, like a shot put. Nay, that, that's none of that whirling round like a demented river dancer. You stand on a line and throw a stone. Talking of stones reminds me of another Scottish joke. What's the difference between a rolling stone and a Scottish sheep farmer? One says, hey, you, get off of my cloud. The other says, hey, McLeod, get off of my... And what about you? 
Ewan, what's your specialty? I toast the caber. The caber? The caber. The caber? The caber. The caber. Oh, for, I throw a bloody pole, all right, then. It weighs about 150 pounds, and I throw it as far as I can. Why? Well, I didn't want to hold on to it. <laughs> and, and you, Fiona, what do you specialize in? I do the sheaf toss. I, taught, I take a pitchfork, jam it into a useless fat sack of grass, and then toss it away up in the air over a pole. Oh, uh, did I uh, did I mention how lovely your hair is, Fiona? <laughs> Tell me, Sarah. Does this tosser need tossing? <laughs> no. Well, he hasn't said anything nice about my hair recently, uh, but I'm still fond of him. Yeah, I'm I'm curious, guys. How did those uh, skirts you wear come to be called kilts? Because <clears throat> the last fellow who called it a skirt got kilt. Hmm. <laughs> You must get asked this all the time, but is anything worn under your kilt? Nay, nee, ma'am. Everything's in perfect working order. You know what I mean. What does a Scotsman wear under his kilt? I've nae met a Scotsman who will tell you what he wears under his kilt, but he'll show you at the drop of a hat. Does the River Clyde run through Glasgow because it's too afraid to walk? Does every first-time haggis eater taste something awful? Is it true Bonnie Prince Charlie was named after three sheepdogs? For the answers to these and other provocative questions, tune in to the next episode of As the Ham Turns. Oh, thank you, Chuckanut Radio players. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you know Whatcom County made world news this month? Oh, for what? Something very dignified and important? Competitive cheese rolling. Competitive what? A Western Washington University graduate won the men's division of this year's cheese rolling race near Gloucester, England. It's a race that draws competitors from around the world. Our local hero, Cooper Clummings, ran down a hill very fast in pursuit of a seven-pound wheel of double Gloucester cheese. Wow, sounds like Cooper was really going. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Running after cheese doesn't sound that difficult, especially if you're lactose intolerant. Boom, boom. Yeah. Well, the 200-yard hill is nearly vertical, and the cheese reaches speeds of 70 miles per hour on the way down. So there you are. The woman's winner this year knocked herself unconscious at the finish line. Wow, so it's really actually difficult. Uh, so what do the winners get? Whoever crosses the finish line first, after the cheese, gets to keep it. Oh, fantastic. And, yeah, yeah, I know, you're going to go for it. And um, they'll probably also get a concussion. Oh. So. Wow, wait, so you're saying the cheese actually won the race? <laughs> it did indeed stand alone. <laughs> Yeah, that's all the Wisconsin people who get that joke. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, second place to a seven-pound wheel of cheese is still an accomplishment Whatcom County can be proud of. Mm -hmm. You know, I just can't believe that contest exists. 
Oh, that's not even the weirdest competition in the UK. Ready? Oh, tell. <laughs> There's also the world nettle eating competition, where competitors eat as many nettle leaves as they can stomach. Mm-hmm. Okay. The record holder ate 104 feet of raw nettles in one hour. The only competition where both losing and winning stings. Yep. And then there's the man versus horse marathon in Wales where people try to outrun or outbike a horse over 22 miles. The event has been won by humans for horses 38. Hmm. You know, it sounds like the humans should concede defeat or the hoof at that one. Yeah. And then there's the World Snail Racing Championships, the World Bog Snorkeling Championships, the World Gravy Wrestling Championships. Mm. Yeah, that one sounds good. Yeah. The World <laughs> Worm Charming Championships. Is the world actually involved in this, or do people in the UK just need better hobbies? Wait, wait, wait. What is Worm Charming? This is a family show, Paul. No. <laughs> no, no, no. It's nothing like that. Basically, people use vibrations to mimic rain and convince worms to emerge from the ground. The more worms, the more glory. So maybe this is why they're trying to drown the English, right? <laughs> Just watch it. More worms, more glory. You know, that is a sequence of words I've never heard before. And between that and the 104 feet of raw nettles, I think I need to hear something else to get these images out of my brain. Kind of like an audio palate cleanser? Yeah. Mm. Well... You're in luck. On that note, let's welcome back our musical guests, Tracy Darling. Back to North Dakota 
inside it We got paid for a year by a millionaire Weaving dreams on the shore and sharing the music When the sandcastle fell into the water Didn't bother to call the week I became a father Guess what comes next Gonna walk my son to the sea Never thought this time would come When I wouldn't recognize me It's all foam on the beach You guys make some beautiful music. Thank you, Tracy Darling. Hey, uh, why don't you tell us about yourselves and where folks can hear more of your music? Hi, yeah. Thank you so much for having us. This is really, really fun. Turns out I'm reading a book right now by the guest author. Didn't realize that till I got here. So exciting. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we're Tracy Darling. We hail from Bellingham, Washington. Um, and you can find out more about us on tracydarling.com. Our music is sort of strewn about the internet in various nooks and crannies. So it's good to go to that hub to find those branches. Um, and we're working on an album right now. And um, patreon.com is a great place to go to hear a little bit more about that and make it happen if you get our drift. You want to add anything, Tracy? Oh, um, just that these are all songs that we write. And we, we are a family together. We have a little baby boy who's about to turn one, actually. On Friday. On Friday. Oh, my gosh. One year ago tonight, I went into labor. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So, once again, it's an honor to sing for you all. You're such an incredible audience. And <laughs> we're happy to be here. Hey. Thank you. Whoa. Hello, darling. Well, we're sure happy to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Okay, so we're going to take a moment to thank our sponsors tonight. Hotel Leo, Pacific Northwest style in the heart of downtown Bellingham. And North Cascades Institute, connecting people, nature, and community since 1986. And 12th Street Shoes, because you can never have too many. And we welcome two new sponsors tonight, Alabama Hill Climbing Club, huffing and puffing to a clearer view of Bellingham Bay since 1972. And bring the outdoors in with the all-new, all-natural line of soaps milled with shea butter, pine cones, and fresh sweat. Fragrance Lake Bath and Body. Doesn't smell like you think it should. (laughs) Now let's pause a moment for station identification. You're listening to the Chuckanut Radio Hour on Bellingham's nonprofit community radio, KMRE 88.3 FM. that right? KMRE is on 88.3 FM. Yeah, that's right, Kelly. They just moved this month, and they're now at full power. No more LP after their call letters. But I thought LP meant that records they play. Well, that does make sense. But uh, no, it meant low power. Oh, 
so now we have to reprogram our car radio? Oh my God, you're right. You know, that's gotten so complicated, I think we may just have to buy a new car. <laughs> that would be easier. And lose my tape player? No. How, how am I going to play my cure tapes? <laughs> Boy, this just got way more complicated. Rich, can you get us out of this too, please? It would be my pleasure. Next up is our resident poet, Kevin Murphy. He's been awarded the prestigious Mayor's Arts Award and has been performing poetry for over 40 years. Please welcome a poet whose performances are always full power, Kevin Murphy. <laughs> Let's not get into what I could be doing, because I know there's a lot. But I'm sitting here on the couch, and it's all right with me. This is what I want. And all the worlds inside me, and the big world outside, and the worlds beyond the world, and all the furniture, and the empty shoes, and the old newspapers on the floor, and the dust swirling around us all. Everything is just right. Not that I want to be here forever, it's just that I am here forever. Sitting here with hands that smell like an onion, wearing socks that are only approximately the same color, and what I assume is a slightly skewed half-smile on my face. And just after I die, and I'm being grilled by committees of archangels, and they're quizzing me about what I do differently in my life, and I'm saying stuff like, well, I wouldn't have charged my grandmother so much for mowing her lawn, and I definitely would have learned a couple of foreign languages, and they get to the part about the time you were just sitting on the couch staring off with a twisted smile. I'll have to say, no way. I wouldn't mess with that. Even if it costs me a week or two in purgatory, I'll have to say, that's a non-negotiable. That was exactly what I wanted. <laughs> and this one is called The First Guitar. The first guitar was a cardboard shoebox with rubber bands for strings. The first guitar was a hollow-bodied universe of stars and silence and chaos and feathers. It was the same crude acoustical device used by the cave people to claw their way out of the age of reptiles and into the age of mammals. Long before humans came on the scene, the first guitar was plucked by monkeys, turtles, crickets, birds, and of course, the Tyrannosaurus rex. The first guitar was carried to Earth by the spiders from Mars. Guitars in those days were smaller, but denser and more powerful. The first guitar resembled a tennis racket, but was not a tennis racket. The first guitar was atmospheric. It appeared in the mind of Picasso and was blue. It appeared in the mind of John Coltrane and was a saxophone. It appeared in the mind of Thomas Edison and was a transistor radio. 
Once upon a time, the first guitar was the Amazon rainforest, sheltering butterflies and jaguars. Guitar, six strings still ringing like the six days of creation, whose first bent notes did twang even before the Big Bang. The first guitar was found under a smoldering shrub, muttering the words, baby, baby, baby. The first guitar was a fighting instrument of karma. Its mojo was working. Its jingle jangle was fully functional. Its fever was contagious. Guitar conjuring invisible cities, ominous voices, dancing trees, Lorca's guitar weeping for the smashed goblet of dawn. Guitar who claimed a thousand times it was going to Kansas City but never actually went there. <laughs> guitar who said, ask not what your guitar can do for you, ask what you can do for your guitar. Guitar whose first album was rescued from the trash and 67 years later emailed to aliens who proclaimed it proof that intelligent life did exist on planet Earth after all. The first guitar was thrashed by a crazed Gnostic monk at the little known border of gospel and punk. The first guitar was played just like ringing a bell, tuning pegs carved from the teeth of a gazelle. Six strings ringing like the six days of creation. Guitar, most magical of objects, most mournful and true, without which my life would be not my life, but some shoddy imitation. The first guitar was a hollow-bodied universe full of fever and feathers and silence and stars. The first guitar was just a crude cardboard box capable of producing only one note. But that note, my friends, was a real humdinger. Wow, thank you, Kevin. Every time, it's just amazing. He always brings the heat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you, Kevin Murphy. You can hear more of Kevin's performances on his CD, The Bird of Pure Midnight. You know, I've been really frustrated in my reading lately. Well, why is that, Rich? I keep coming across so many cliches. What are writers thinking? You're a writer, Paul. What do you think about cliches? Oh, geez, I avoid them like the plague. You know, I have the same problem with cliches, Rich. I just go ballistic when I see them. Even when they hit the nail on the head, they put me on tenderhooks. Yeah, you're right, Kelly. I mean, the devil is in the details, and what the heck is a tenderhook anyway? But, you know, some writers just beat a dead horse. You'd think cliches were the author's strong suit. You know, when I encounter a tidal wave of cliches, I feel like I'm on a roller coaster ride, and then I'm just getting the short end of the stick. <laughs> Yep, writers sometimes just go down a rabbit hole. I just want to ditch the book. It's a shame because I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yep, yep, yep. You know, sometimes you just have to be laser-focused. And uh, buckle down, stay the course, and keep reading. Wow. Have you two been listening to yourselves? I complain about cliches, and you serve them up on a silver platter. It's like I opened Pandora's box. So, 
I'm going to take the bull by the horns and introduce the next segment of our program. Without further ado... Ooh, thank you, Rich. Someone had to do it. We are thrilled to welcome tonight's guest author and good friend, Lyanda Lynn Haupt, back to the Chuckin' It Radio Hour. Last time she was on the show was for Mozart's Starling, an enchanting book that, like all of her books, combines scientific knowledge with literary poetic prose. She's an award-winning author, naturalist, and eco-philosopher whose work explores the beautiful, complicated connections between humans and the wild natural world. Her newest book, Rooted, is currently on the bestseller list and is about interconnection, healing, and creating a life of reciprocity with all beings. And interviewing Lyanda is Beck Dietrich, the executive director of North Cascades Institute, taking the reins from Institute founder Saul Weisberg in 2021. But she began her outdoor career much earlier as an educator and naturalist. During her career, she has led backpacking trips in Yosemite, marine science adventures in Catalina, ecology lessons in Maine, and has worked in four different national parks. Please give a warm welcome to two talented, kind-hearted, and generous people that we are so honored to know, Lyanda Linhaupt and Bex Dietrich. Great. Well, what a great crowd here. Um, And we wanted to start off by hearing a reading, an excerpt that you've chosen um, that speaks to you on this night. Okay. Thank you. Hello, everyone. And thank you, Paul and Kelly, for that beautiful introduction. I'm super excited to be here. And okay, I'll read a little bit without spilling my water. All right, so when I, just to set this up a little bit, when I was thinking about just starting to conceive this book, I started having really weird dreams about walking down a big path. And while I was walking down the big path, I would see little paths and I'd start going down those. And it was a dream that I had over and over again. And in some of the dreams, I was wearing a red hood. (laughs) So you know where this went. I went to the library and I started checking out all of the books I could find and all of the even academic books about the mythology of Little Red Riding Hood. I knit myself a red hood. (laughs) The dreams didn't go away until I finally wrote this. Um, One of the things that I found out in all of the academic research is that the wolf almost always has, imagine this, a negative connotation. So in Jungian psychology, it's sort of that archetype of the predator capital P, that sort of thing that lures us away from our true selves and our full maturation. And so in order to achieve our authentic being, we need to avoid that predator. My reading of the story is different. (laughs) Goes like this. When the wolf lures Red off the trail, he sets her a task something to occupy her time so that he can pad over to the grandmother's house and eat her up. The task is picking wildflowers. Now, instead of just a boring tin of muffins for her grandmother, Red will show up with a basket full of wild beauty that she gathered herself from the forest, treasures not found on the well-traveled path. She will find her own way through the woods. And when she arrives, yes, She will be eaten by the wolf as her grandmother was before her. 
But it turns out they are both perfectly well. They are swallowed whole by the wild and emerge exhilarated. They place the flowers on the table and feast with an exquisite new hunger. I am positive that at the end of the tale, when Red promises her wise elder grandmother that from now on she will stay on the path, it is with a wink and a nudge between them. The grandmother has known for some time, and Red is just learning, who wants an everyday path paved and void of danger when we can have beasts and shadows and secret flowers and unexpected visits from the feral wolves of our imaginations. Who among us has not heard it? The wolf of this beloved damaged earth beckoning us by name just outside our safe living room, demanding our own response. The strange and persistent furry pod knocking. We peek tentatively through the door, just ajar, and see that there's no road, no sidewalk, barely a trail, and that obscured by stones, by leaves, by an intimation of the remains of those who have walked before us upon the unyielding circle of life. In spite of it all, we long to walk this path, for we know that there is more than what has been given and named by the overculture, more than what we have been told is true, more than green gardens and nature calendars and recycling and a summer hike in the mountains and an occasional hour-long forest bath, however lovely that sounds. We know that there is a wilder earth, and upon it, within it, a wilder, more authentic human self. We know the need of each for the other is absolute. We pack our satchel lightly and cross the threshold. Hmm. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. What a beautiful invitation just to have this conversation with you today. Um, and I have to fangirl really quick here that this book, if you haven't read it yet, is absolutely extraordinary. Um, you had me at Frog Church <laughs> where the frogs were resting on your belly all the way through until we once again laid down at the end of the book and laid down on the earth. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite parts was your chapter Unseen, where you speak about darkness, but with such lightness and hope, and it was just gorgeous. Out of all the beautiful things that are in this book, I'm curious tonight why you chose that passage to start us off with. Well, it was hard to decide what to read, but I wanted to read something that was very general, that encompassed the invita invitational nature of this book. So one of the things that I have heard for, um, years and years in response to my writing is the question from people seeking a deeper connection with the earth or with their own sense of activism in the world. And they just say, you know, what should I do? Like, what do we do? We know what a difficult position we're in ecologically, right? We all know the litany of ecological despair. Mm -hmm. Won't repeat it here on this beautiful solstice <laughs> night. <laughs> um, but the question is, yeah, what do we do? And I would be always, you know, kind of struck silent by that question because there's no one answer. Mm. 
There's no one answer. We're all such unique beings with our own unique, um, I don't want to sound cliche <laughs> in saying this, <laughs> it but the theme. it's kind of that new age platitude that we all have our own gift in the world that we seek. But, you know, it's true. Like, we do, we're, we're all so different, and so our own way of responding to that will be unique. And that little story is just sort of the, um, the invitation that into these questions of um, how do we deepen our responsiveness. And I try to provide some guide posts and way markers without bludgeoning people over the head with my idea of what works for me, but just trying to provide you know, an invitation into mm. this world. Yeah. Thank you. And I will say, one of the things, um, when I first started the book, I was like, okay, is this going to be an angsty, dark, the world is gloom and doom? <laughs> um, and it was not at all. It had such hope and light into what you had said of um, just the ways in which, um, whether it's one or I think you said 10,000 actions, whatever we might be able to do is just gorgeous. I'm wondering, you wrote, the, you wrote this book, um, it came out two years ago. Right. Um, and since it has been out, since there's been so many readers of this, book, I'm curious if people have connected to this book in a way different than maybe you had expected or maybe even hoped. Well, I was a little bit, this book is a little bit of a departure for me because I usually write about birds and I think people were a little bit surprised and there are still birds in there, of course. <laughs> birds are um, represented. And so I was worried that, worried that I would lose some of my typical readers and mm -hmm. I was so just delighted to see how many people found sustenance and joy in this book, especially coming out of the pandemic. So I didn't mean to be, I started this book before the pandemic. Um, I was writing it deep in the pandemic mm -hmm. and we postponed the publication thinking that the pandemic would be over you know it was it was going to be in November and then it came out you know the following May and we were just still in deep deep into it. So um, I think because it offers so many points of direct connection mm -hmm. to the earth and to the world, I think people were just hungry for that. And so it, it really hit a spot in people's spirits and psyches. Mm -hmm. um, and that carried, you know, on after COVID lockdown as well. That's beautiful. Um, was there any portion of the book that when you were writing it that it just flowed from you that you were like, uh, I picture you, you write in the book, you know, sitting there with uh, maybe against a tree or outside with your notepad and um, I just picture this just flowing from you. But was there any section that just was, um, I don't want to say easy to write, but that just um, that came to you with lightness and, and you were able to get onto the page in a, uh, an easier way? Hmm. You know, maybe the very beginning, you mentioned Frog Church. Mm -hmm. So the name of the book is Rooted, but up until the very, very last minute, it was called Frog Church. I love that. And thank you. <laughs> I liked it too. But guess what? One of the um, editors at Little Brown hates frogs. <laughs> I know. And he's not even my editor, but he's he's like the president of the world there. So he, he kind of just, he just axed it at the last minute. And, and they said it was too, you know, boutique-y a title. And maybe they're right. I was really excited when I came up with Rooted because it seemed like just, I, I, it turns out that I used that word a gajillion times in the book. And that was even before I had named it Rooted. And when I, 
I know. I'm not answering your question. I'm no, making I up a different it. question to answer. Anything about Frog Church, if anyone doesn't know, <laughs> just read the first part of the book. You'll be hooked. Um, when I came up with Rooted, I was sure that that title was taken, but it, it really was not by a mm-hmm. major book, so I was excited about that. But I incorporated Frog Church into the very beginning, and it's a story about when I was young, and there was a stream down the canyon behind my back, and even though I was raised Catholic, I kind of created my own little church. And I thought of it as, I thought of it so clearly as a real church that I actually confessed that I had created my own church in Catholic church confession. <laughs> so I would sneak down there and, you know, I'd just bring my notebook. I was, you know, a weird introverted writer child and bring my apple and my notebook. And I learned that if you just sneak your hand under a frog, they don't freak out and jump away and you can put them on your belly. I'd I'd gather my little congregation of frogs and just watch the trees overhead, and that was my little church. <laughs> I so love that, that part was really that part just flowed because it was just so part so much a part of me for so long. That's wonderful. And I guess I, I should ask them the converse of that: of was there anything that was was a struggle that kind of uh, took some work or kind of trudging through to get it to speak the way you had hoped, or anything that was a little more of a challenge? And maybe even because we were in pan- the pandemic or. You know, I, I can't think that there's a particular part that was harder to write than others, but I will say that writing is is hard, you know, and um, so it it's always, not always, I mean, there were many, many sections that it was just hard to make them flow. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I mentioned in this book is that you talk about the idea of nature writers, sort of that vision of leaning against a tree and twiddling our, you know, Um, pencils that have been whittled with our Swiss army knives, which I actually do that. (laughs) It brings me joy. You know, it smells like carved wood pencils. I love that. Um, And I do do that. And there is that, um, you know, image that's accurate. But honestly, everyone, I am a really anxious writer, too. I mean, I struggle with depression and anxiety. I I struggle with, you know, procrastination and deadline dread and then anxiety over my procrastination and just all the stuff. And so one of the things that was wonderful about this book, um, because I was writing about a lot of the science that shows how good um, being in nature is for our health. And so often we think of that in terms of how nature makes us calm and it makes us tranquil. Um, that our inner calm is somehow reflected or um, by an outer calm in the natural world. And one of the things that struck me is that there's so much anxiety and so much chaos in um, nature. And that is something that you know, speaks really authentically to us. You know, like we go out, we see the cute little bunny and it's sitting there and it's holding really still, pretending to be invisible. And it's not sitting there going, oh my God, I'm having so much fun on this happy, sunny day. It's sitting there going, oh my God, something might eat me, something might eat me, something might eat me. And and so, I mean, there's just something, I think, comforting about mm. realizing that we are... Th- that we don't need to be calm all the time to find our way in nature, Mm. that sometimes um, nature reflects our anxieties back to us as well, and that, in turn, can be very healing. 
Very comforting, yeah. Yeah. Well, and thank you for going through that to then produce this beautiful work. So that is that is wonderful. Um, I'm curious. You mentioned science and um, having a background in science and very like science. Um, <laughs> and one of the things actually that drew me to the North Cascades Institute was that it's very grounded in science. Lots of ecologists, geologists, botanists, all the folks. But there's also the recognition of so many other ways of knowing, which is why we also do watercolors and photography and poetry. Um, and so that spoke to me in your book that you spend quite a bit of time just exploring science the ways we know, the way knowing has kind of evolved and things that maybe once were a little woo-woo um, are now very understood and mm -hmm. recognized and accepted. And I'm curious, this is a little out there of a question, but how do you think in the next maybe 20, 30 years, science is gonna continue to evolve? Mm -hmm. Or maybe a better question is, how do you hope it will evolve? Mm. Um. So I want to tell you that before we talked, Beck said, do you want to see my questions? Like, do you want to, you know, have a sense of what I'm going to talk about? And I said, no, let's just be spontaneous. And now I'm thinking, I should have asked to see the question. <laughs> I would have had a really good response. Um, well, I, I, yeah, it's I, okay. I, I think because the, that part of the book, especially because there were so many women scientists that were yeah. discounted for their work, mm -hmm. it really spoke to me. And I, I think there's so much power and knowledge and learning there. Right. Um, so yeah, just curious. Well, one of the things that, um, that really actually led to the genesis of this book was a lot of the new science about, you know, the science of forest bathing, mm. that we have continuity with our health when we are spending time in nature, or some of the new information on the way that trees are living in conscious communities, the way they communicate by you know, the chemicals that are released by the movement of their branches and the mycelial networks under the earth. All of this new science that is deepening our sense of interconnection. And a lot of that is heralded as new, you know, mm -hmm. new scientific discoveries. And there are many things about it that are new, like the specifics of the science and how it exactly works. But part of me was thinking, self, this is not new. I mean, this is humanity old knowledge. This is knowledge from indigenous earth-based cultures across time and across space. This is knowledge that is brought to us by poets and artists and musicians and the innate knowing of our own hearts when we live in response to the more than human world. And mm -hmm. so it's, and I think that the new science allows us to break out of the objectivity that science used to have where it was just, you know, mm -hmm. separate. Uh, separate, right? And so I, I see this is just the beginning of a continuous evolution that will help us flesh out that humanity old knowledge with the beauty um, and specificity of the unseen that science can bring to it. Mm, that's beautiful. One final question I have. Mm -hmm. So at North Cascades Institute, we work a lot with kids. Mm -hmm. um, and we actually have a group going out here soon, our first summer group of uh, the um, uh, backpacking program for nine days. Um, and I'm curious, what piece of advice, what knowledge, what hope, what would you want this, uh, these ninth graders, these 10th graders that are going out, or even our fifth graders in mountain school, what would you want them to know or what could we pass on to them? Mm. 
just to have, I want to say, the word that comes to mind is courage, mm. you know, like of the heart. Like so often still kids are taught to just, you know, be scared of, of nature or to be cautious everywhere. My daughter's here and I'm thinking about when she was a Girl Scout, she was out hiking and she was, because we were, you know, always picking native plants, eating our way through the forest. And she was going to show them that you could, you know, she pulled up licorice fern and said, oh, you can chew on this. And her leader said, oh my God, don't eat anything. And then like, don't you, everyone's going to get poisoned and I'll get sued and you know, all that stuff. And of course we have to exercise caution, but I just think, yeah having our kids just be a little like braver and wilder and supporting that and just having them embrace their own courage and joy in the natural world. Thank you. So appreciate your time tonight. Likewise. Thank you. you. Thanks everyone. Thank you, you too. Thank you so much, Leanda and Beck. Um, tonight's audience will have a chance to ask you more questions after the show. You know, the interviews always seem like they go way too short, but this one seemed especially short. We wanted to hear so much more from you. So we're looking forward to hearing from you more after the show with our audience. You can look for Leanda's book, Rooted, Life at the Crossroads of Science, Nature, and Spirit at Village Books, villagebooks.com, or at your local favorite independent bookstore. Where you buy your books matters to your community. And when you finished it, come talk to us, because we always love to talk about books. And now, happy day. Welcome them back for one more song, Tracy Darling. <laughs> thanks again, everyone, for having us. Uh, thanks for that awesome interview. I'm so excited and happy right now. Um, it occurred to us that I should spell our name. It's not intuitive. <laughs> okay, everybody ready? Trace D is T-R-A-E-S-T-I. And then Darling is the normal way of spelling Darling. In fact, Trace D's mother had a, a song for him to learn how to spell his name when he was little. I think it was T-R-A-E-S-T-I. Isn't that right? Trace D, Trace D. <laughs> so maybe that will help you remember. Anyway, um, our last song is called Mercy Me and... We're recording it on our upcoming album, so hopefully you'll be able to find it there. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I have My mask and my hat at the whalebone well. I've been caught by the tide, I've been brought to my knees. I have tempered the snake at the gates of hell. smoked with the gods and forgot my name and of all that I've seen nothing's touched me more than when you showed me your mercy 
Thank you so much. Thank you. What a perfect song to close out this episode of the Chuckanut Radio Hour. Uh, that's a perfectly selected. Thank you. You know, there's a lot of people to thank for putting this show together, and we're going to start with thanking Tracy Darling for t providing tonight's music. Woo! Thank you. And happy birthday to your child. <laughs> All right, here we go. A hearty round of applause to resident poet Kevin Murphy and to the Chuckanut Radio players. Les Campbell, Robert Muzzy, Tanya Myers, Lucas Naylor, and de debuting tonight, Molly Garrison. And a deeply rooted thanks to our guest author, Lyanda Lynn Haupt, and to interviewer, Beck Dietrich. Thank you. And to you, our studio audience here at the Hotel Leo, a huge thank you for coming here tonight to see us. How great are y'all? And to all of you listening on the radio and online, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to the Chuckanut Radio Hour, written by Paul Hansen, Roland Ketchley, Chuck Robinson, Les Campbell, Sarah Hawley, and Rich Donnelly over pints at Dirty Dan's Steakhouse. Our stage and sound engineer who makes us sound good is Phil Heaven. Our production assistant is Maddie Musquiz, and our show coordinator is Hannah Buer. Hannah Buer. As the Ham Turns was written by Les Campbell, and its theme music was lifted from the internet. Chuckanut Radio Hour theme music is by Joe Young. Our song signature is by the Honeybees. Our executive producer is Paul Hansen, and the show's creator is Chuck Robinson. The Chuckanut Radio Hour reserves all rights to this program. It may not be rebroadcast without permission. This episode of the Chuckanut Radio Hour is sponsored by the Hotel Leo, an historic hotel and hospitality hub in the heart of downtown Bellingham. Okay, and you guys could probably say this one with me. You should know it by now. Buy 12 Street Shoes because you can never have too many. <laughs> and by North Cascades Institute, connecting people, nature, and community. And by Village Books, building community one book at a time. And until next time, this is your host, Kelly Ebert. And this is your host, Paul Hansen, wishing you good luck and, and good, good reading. reading.